Well, this is not an unnecessary detour. I don't know if you take those. I have a horrible sense of direction. And so I often take unnecessary detours unintentionally. I get in the car. I get praying, listening to music, uh, whatever it may be. And I've remarked many a time as I'm passing the place I'm supposed to be turning. Look, there it is. Look at that. There it goes. All right. Good. Or worse yet, I arrive somewhere I didn't intend to arrive at, get out of the car and realize, wait a second, this is not where I was going. That's not why we're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. This is a very purposeful detour because we've spent the last couple of weeks in John 11. John 11, if you haven't been here with us, is a, a very familiar story to us because it tells us of the resurrection of Lazarus. You're probably very familiar with that story. And while that's really the main story, there's something else going on in John 11. There's way more than just a resurrection story. In fact, as we've looked at the passage together, we realize that while Lazarus is the guy that dies and is resurrected, he's not the focus of the passage at all. But rather we find the focus of the passage in John 11 verse 25 where Jesus turns to Martha and he says to her I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die and then a very powerful question is asked by Jesus Jesus was a master of question asking he looks at Martha in that compassionate and yet probing way that Jesus so often did, and he asked this simple question, do you believe this? And that question comes to us this morning because, praise God, there is not just one resurrection story in the Bible. This morning, in fact, what we see in Ephesians in chapter 2 is not the resurrection of just one man named Lazarus who lived a long time ago in a land far, far away. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see either our resurrection or the invitation to be resurrected. And so this morning, we want to behold the glory that Jesus spoke about in John 11 And is further revealed in Ephesians chapter 2. Because that's what Jesus said. Way back when he first hears of Lazarus' sickness in John 11 in verse 4. He says this to his disciples. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So God's going to be glorified as the Son of God is glorified through this. Then he picks that same idea up at Martha's objection as they stand in front of Lazarus' tomb. And he says, roll the stone away, move it out of the way. And Martha says, no, it's been four days, it's going to stink. And what does Jesus say? He says, Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There is glory in John 11 and there is glory in this text. Now, there is no way I'm going to be able to, to dig out all of the wonderful truths that are in these ten verses because there is just way too much and we would be here way too long. 
But what I want us to do this morning is to see that fact that there is yet another resurrection, that Lazarus' resurrection, while amazing because it was done in the physical, there is also just as real and literal a resurrection that we have either already experienced or Christ offers to us to experience this morning. And it is a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. Well, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, there are just three things that I want us to see this morning. And the first of those things is this, minimizing or misdiagnosing my spiritual condition before salvation hinders my ability to see the glory of God. Minimizing or misdiagnosing my spiritual condition before salvation hinders my ability to see the glory of God. Paul starts out this way, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Like we saw in John 11, there's this stress on the fact that Lazarus was really dead dead, right? This idea that he was dead four days was important to make sure that he hadn't just passed out or swooned or fainted or was just sleeping really hard. But he was actually really, totally, completely, physically dead. And it's stressed. Here in this passage, Paul insists on the fact that you and I are also dead. Now this, this word we start out says and, and it's connecting us to all that's flowed through chapter 1. I think a new thought is being developed here, so he's not leaving what's happened in chapter 1, but he's developing a new thought. The you takes us back to the beginning of the first chapter where Paul has identified the saints at Ephesus. They're the ones he's writing this letter to. And that's why he can use the past tense here. And say, you were dead. This death is as literal a death as Lazarus' physical death. Lazarus was literally, I'm not using that like a teenage girl, literally, meaning he was actually dead. Four days dead, body decomposing dead. And you and I, Paul insists here, are spiritually dead. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 2. That's the place this becomes most obvious. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. Jesus warned Adam and Eve, Jesus, God, warned Adam and Eve that if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that they ate of it, they would what? They would die. So in the following chapter, chapter 3, when Eve eats and then Adam eats, what happens? Do they drop dead physically? No, they die spiritually. Immediately they realize that they're naked and they're ashamed. And in utter horror, the moment that the image bearing, the the God whose image they bear comes to commune with them, instead of drawing into that communion in shame, they hide. Spiritual death is separation from God and it is a reality and it is complete. Paul stresses here this idea of death. And, and, and as you read the, the passage, it's almost as if Paul wants to start verse 1 and just say, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses being that there was a line and we crossed it. We know that. We've all seen a do not trespass sign. And if you're anything like me, the sign is like, a, 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 I bet you won't, you know, <laughs> I dare you, kind of thing. And so you see the don't trespass sign and you just kind of ah, step over that line. 
And it's in the plural to insist on the fact this wasn't one oops, it wasn't just an accident, but you repeatedly did it in sins, you have fallen short over and over and over again. We have transgressed and fallen short. We are absolutely and totally dead. And it's almost as if Paul wants to just leave that thought there and launch to verse 4. But God. But in order that we might be ready to hear those powerful words, but God, he says, no, let, let me stay here for a little bit so that you will remember how dead you were and what that death, that spiritual death was like. And so he continues and he, he says this, he says that we were dead, but then in verse 2 he says, in which you once walked. So now we have walking dead people. The idea is living dead people. So we're alive and we're moving physically, but spiritually we're dead. But we're living as slaves, is essentially what Paul describes here. And we're enslaved to three things as he unfolds them. First, we're we're enslaved to this world. The word there, the course in, in the ESV, the course of this world is the idea of age. As I understand it, it's the current philosophy, the current culture and worldview of our time. Anyone who thinks that they live a life totally free from their culture and their worldview is just foolish. You don't have to travel much in the world to realize how much your culture has an impact on you. That's just one aspect of this. But your culture has a drastic impact on what you value and the way you see the world around you. And Paul says here that in our state of sin, in our dead state of sinfulness, we were worldly, we were controlled by the world. That's not all though, we were also controlled by Satan. Paul goes on to say that we were following the spirit of the power of the air, the prince that is now, the spirit, excuse me, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This idea of work there is, is, is a supernatural power to accomplish his will. It's the same word that Paul has used in chapter one where he talked about God working out his will. That is not to say that somehow Satan and God are locked in some kind of cosmic battle and that Satan is equal to God or they have an equal amount of power or authority. But it is to say that Satan is alive and well and in our state of spiritual deadness we are powerless to stop him. It is not to say that every unbeliever is possessed by Satan. But every unbeliever lacks any capacity to thwart his plans or to stop the advancement of his will. You see, this is a great example for for us of how our worldview impacts us, right? (laughs) Because you are fine with, you are enslaved to this world and you're fine with, you're enslaved to your flesh. But the moment we start talking about Satan, we're like, "Uh, spiritual stuff. Is that really real? We live in a, in a culture that puts so much emphasis on physical, things I can put in a test tube, things I can touch, taste, see, all that. That's really real. And yet Paul here tells us that there is a reality that Satan is alive and well and at work in the world, seeking to accomplish his will. And for those who are dead in their sins, they're enslaved to him. They have no ability to fight against him. 
Then he, he finishes that with this, this, this great thing here. He says that, that the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, we don't often do this. Again, a cultural note. We don't address ourselves or introduce ourselves as the son of someone. Because it's our first name. We're very individualistic here in this culture. And one of the ways that comes out is when someone asks me my name, I don't give my family name. I give my first name. In fact, I would probably be embarrassed to try and go around and get all of your family names or your middle names. But in Senegal, where we lived for six and a half years, we had a guard that worked for us for the first several years. It wasn't until he had worked at our house for an entire year, I realized I did not know his first name. He didn't care to tell me his first name. It was his family name that mattered to him. So to me, I had called him by his last name that he had been handed down, and that was way more important to him than his first name. He could care less if I knew that. What Paul's saying here is gives that idea, sons of disobedience, this is our heritage, this is our descendant. Just like I am a son of my father, we are sons of disobedience. And that really leads us into this next thought, this third slavery that Paul lays out here so clearly. It's a, a slavery to the flesh. We are controlled by our passions and desires. The, the focus here is so clear. It's an inordinate drive. An unsatisfiable lusting. We are controlled by our passions and as Proverbs tells us and Ecclesiastes tells us, as Paul makes reference here to the mind as well, it's not just the body, it's not just emotions, but as he says in verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, there is a way that seems right to man. All of us live the life that we perceive to be best. Whether we tell ourselves differently or not, the way you behaved this last week says a lot about what you believe to be really best for you. So we're enslaved. This is the condition of our sinfulness. We are dead in our sins and ultimately it results in this final statement about us that says that we are children of wrath. Our rightful place is to be under the wrath of God. Luther put it this way, Martin Luther put it this way, and I think this is good. This isn't an exact quote, but he gives this idea. He says, the sinful nature is a nature turned in on itself, so much so that it seeks to use everything, including God Himself, for its own sake. That was our state, so turned in on ourselves, that all we can do is think about ourselves. We're consumed with who we are. Everything around us is evaluated on one sole question. What can I gain? What does it profit me? And we can't see anything else. Even though there are a lot of morally good people that are spiritually dead, all of their moral goodness is to make themselves look good because their soul is turned inward. And they're enslaved to their own passions and desires in the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. To say that we are all spiritually dead does not mean that we all stink as much as we possibly could, right? You go to the hospital, there are levels of sick people, we put them in different places around the hospital. You don't get that same thing at the coroner's office. Well, these are the kind of dead people, these are the pretty much dead people, these guys are way gone, right? Despite what Billy Crystal might tell you in The Princess Bride, 
There is no half dead. We are all totally dead. But as that image carries itself out, there are levels of decay. And just because you and I are spiritually dead, it does not mean that we are all as wicked as we possibly could be by the grace of God. But do not allow yourselves for a moment to assume that because you're not as wicked as you could be, you're somehow less dead than God's Word tells you that you are. If Lazarus gets out of the grave, John 11 and begins broadcasting the notion that he was somehow not really dead. You know, I was sick, and I felt a little bad, my stomach was a little queasy, but I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't like dead, dead. I mean, come on, guys. What immediately begins to happen to what Jesus did? It begins to diminish the glory of God that Jesus said He wanted to be on display because Lazarus begins to diminish the condition of his deadness. When you and I fail to remember or accept or misdiagnose who we were and where we were before we came to Christ, we minimize the glory of God in the Gospel. None of us were kind of good. None of us were really okay. We just needed a little Jesus in our lives. All of us were dead. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were controlled by the world, by Satan and our own flesh. Our souls were turned inward and we had already started on the path of hell. And it was only a matter of time before we arrived there. When Jesus was at the Pharisee's house and this lady had come in and washed his feet, which the Pharisees had failed to do, and he says in Luke chapter 7 verse 43, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but you, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The point is not that there are some people less dead, therefore they love Jesus less. He was looking at self-righteous men and saying to them, you cannot love me like this woman loves me because you are caught up in your own self-righteousness. When we understand our dead state before God, the glory of God shines through. Don't minimize that, folks. Don't believe in your minds and don't accept that cultural nuance here in the South that you are basically good, that there's just good people out there. You know, he's good people. He's a dead people. He's dead in his sin. He's dead in his transgressions. And without God, he's a child of wrath. He's a son of disobedience. And no matter how morally good he is, his soul is turned inward. And so it was for you and me. Even if you've grown up in this church and you've heard great preaching from the time that you were still, I don't know, down in the nursery. It does not mean that you were any less dead or any less saved by the grace of God. Well, the second thing we want to see this morning is this. God alone is the glorious source and subject of my salvation. God alone is the glorious source and subject of of my salvation. Now, if you're familiar with Paul, you know that Paul loves to torment grammarians. So if you're one of those people, you're on Facebook just so you can instant message people back and say it's not your, it's your. Right? 
It's not where, it's where. You're one of those people. Paul gets under your skin. Because once again, Paul has done a classic Paul thing. He has started a sentence in verse 1. And you wait all the way to verse 4 before you get a subject. And the sentence goes all the way to verse 7. So here's classic Paul doing his classic Paul thing. My grammarian friends are... Thankfully it's not as clear here in the English. But this sentence is begging for a subject. Not only that, theologically it's begging for something. Because Paul has sat and, 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 and although he desired to tell these Ephesian believers to remind them you were dead in your sins and then launched straight into but God, he wants them to remember the state of their deadness and the depth of their deadness, the totality of their deadness. So he just sits there and he lets that marinate over them. And by the time you get to verse 4, you're begging for a subject both grammatically and theologically. You're saying, help me out. And so we get verse 4. You know, there's something about John 11 that's interesting. is that nothing in John 11 is extraordinary outside of Jesus. Have you thought about that before? John 11, think about the story. A man gets sick. That's not really extraordinary. I've done that. <laughs> A guy gets sick. His relatives get concerned. They tell other people that he's sick. He dies. He's buried. There's a funeral. There's weeping and sorrow. Extraordinary? Totally normal. We see that and experience that all around the world all the time. There's nothing to write about in John 11 if it's not for who? For Jesus. You see, Jesus changes the entire narrative of John 11. If Jesus doesn't show up, there's nothing to write about. If Jesus doesn't show up, it's not an extraordinary story. If Jesus doesn't show up, it does not matter. I don't care who Lazarus is or that he got sick and that he died. But Jesus does show up. And it changes that entire narrative. And here in this passage, dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, we get to verse 4, and two little words change everything. But God. But God. The subject is supplied and it changes absolutely everything. That little word but there doesn't just, doesn't just contrast what's come before. It contrasts what immediately follows with what's come before. You and I were dead in our sins, but God. God totally different than us. God not affected by sin. God totally pure and righteous. But God. It changes absolutely everything in this passage as the presence of Jesus changed absolutely everything in John chapter 11. And as we look at this passage and as the subject breaks in, we, we see three things that happen here. Three things. We see first of all that God reacts in mercy, motivated by love, on the basis of grace. Now I'm helped in this by a commentary that a guy you know gave me. I don't know if you 
heard of Howard Dial before. He gave me more commentaries than I could read on this passage. But one in particular was helpful, and I borrowed some of these thoughts there to give credit where credit is due. First of all, God breaks in and we see this, but God, and what does it say? Being rich in what? Mercy. This is God's reaction to the reality that Paul has described in verses 1 through 3. This is God's reaction. Now we saw this vividly in John 11, did we not? Because Jesus is in that passage, but Jesus was not obligated to do anything for Lazarus. Jesus was not obligated to draw into the death and sickness of Lazarus. Jesus was not obligated to draw into the suffering of Martha and Mary, but He does. So much so that the God-man weeps at the suffering that He sees in front of Him. He enters in. He is moved in compassion. He is moved and stirred. It weighs upon Him. It troubles Him. It is mercy. Jesus in John 11 reacts in mercy. And Paul says here that God reacts in mercy towards you and me. He could be absolutely and totally indifferent and He would still be righteous and just. But God sees our condition and moves towards us in mercy. He reacts in mercy. But don't be fooled by this because we can react in mercy and it's because we feel guilty. We can react in mercy and it's because we saw so many pictures of some poor pot-bellied child barely clothed with flies all over their face that we said, how can I be sitting here in my air conditioning watching television and not give? And so out of guilt and kind of misery and, and, and this weight on our shoulders we give. God's mercy is not motivated by some sense of guilt. And it certainly was not motivated because He looked down at you and me and He saw something intrinsically valuable in us. He did not look down and go, Oh, Eric, you have so much potential. You're just a bundle of potential. You know what? I'm going to come to you in mercy. It's heresy. God responds in mercy motivated by what? What does the passage tell us? Because of His great love. It was not me that motivated this great outflow of mercy. This abounding of mercy. It was nothing in me, nothing in you. It was because of God's love. He's motivated out of love. And not only was He motivated, but there's this clear indication that He chose to love us. It wasn't love like you hear about on the radio. It wasn't love like you texted to someone this week, I love you. It wasn't that kind of emotional driven love. This is agape love which seeks the best of the object that it is placed upon. And so God, in motivated out of love because He's seeking the best of the object which is you and me, which He has placed His affections upon, moves towards us in mercy. And in doing so, what does He do? This motivation, this, this motivation of love, this action of mercy, what does the text tell us that God does? Well, this is what Paul says that God does. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, just to remind you, Paul wants to just remind us, dead in our transgressions, he says, made us alive together with Christ. Now again, this sentence has been straining for this, because finally we get a verb. 
We got a subject in verse 4. Now in verse 5, we finally get a verb. But God made alive. This is what God did. Reacting in mercy, motivated out of love, verse 5 tells us He made us alive together with Christ. This verb that Paul uses here is only used here and also in Colossians. And Paul does a very classic preacher thing. He makes his own word up. He wants to stress so clearly that our being alive is so attached with Christ that he takes the preposition and he smashes it into the verb. He says, ha, take that. You can't separate it. You are alive, but you are only alive with who? Christ. You have been made alive, but you are only made alive in Christ. We are alive in Christ because Christ lives. You see how that works? We know this, right? Because this is what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He stresses this point in verses 12 through 19. Verse 17 of that says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, Paul's making a connection between a physical reality that took place and a spiritual reality that took place. When Jesus Christ got up out of the grave on the third day, you and I received spiritual life. Jesus received physical life and physically got up. You and I received spiritual life. Our life is hid in Him. If He doesn't get up, we have no life. But because He got out of the grave, we have life. We live in Him. But that's not it. He goes on and He says, you were made alive with Christ, but then He also says you were raised with Christ. We don't often think about this, and I didn't until I came back to this passage again this week. Jesus didn't just wake up in the grave. He wasn't just powerful enough to wake up in the grave and then just lay there. And can you picture that, the story, the, the, the narrative in John 11 that way? Jesus didn't just say to Lazarus, wake up Lazarus! And he's just flopping around in there. Or he's in some kind of coma. Or he's paralyzed. You and I have not just been given life. Watch. You and I have not just been given life. But we have been given the power to get up out of the grave. Jesus Christ didn't just come to life the third day, but under His own power and authority, He got up out of the grave and He walked out. Lazarus didn't just lay in there in the tomb with no ability to move, but he got up under his own strength. The, 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 the decontamination that had begun to happen to his physical body under the power of the resurrection and life, who is Jesus Christ, transformed his body and not only gave him life, but gave him the power to walk out of the grave. And so you and I this morning, if we are in Christ, have not just been given life, but we've been raised. That's good enough, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there. We were not only raised with Him, but Paul goes on to say we were seated with Him. In all of these verbs, he does the same thing. He takes the verb and the preposition and he 
combines them together just to stress the fact if you think there is a way you will be raised to life apart from Christ, it's not going to happen. If you think there's a way you will have spiritual life apart from Christ, it's not going to happen. And beloved, if you think there's a way you're going to get into glory without Christ, it is not going to happen. We are seated with Him. We know Scripture tells us that Christ, after dying on the cross and rising again, was taken up into glory. And there He sits at the Father's right hand. He intercedes over us, First John chapter 2. And it also tells us that He has been given a name, and one day all will proclaim this reality, that He has been given a name which is above every name. Now that is not just physical names. In the book of Ephesians, there is a focus on spiritual powers, principalities, authorities. And the reality is, and I think what Paul is stressing here, is that all that slavery that he talked about in verse 2 has been broken. And we, because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, have been seated with Him. So we are no longer enslaved to this world and the ways of this world. We are no longer enslaved to Satan to be objects simply moved across the board under His will and under His power and influence. And we are no longer enslaved to the flesh and to our own sinful desires. Our soul is no longer turned inward but outward to behold the glory of God. In the face of Christ. We are seated with Him. We are seated with Him. John Stott said this, and I think this is so good. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man. I'll read that again. The essence of sin is man substituting Himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man. So what does Paul tell us here? He took my death so I could have His life. He was crushed under the wrath that my sin deserved so that I could be raised up. He took my seat in the grave so that I could be seated with Him in glory. All that happens because there is a God who breaks in to the literal reality of my spiritual death and moves towards me in mercy. That's His reaction. Compassion. Loving kindness. Motivated by love. Not some intrinsic value that I have. But we're still begging a question here. How? How could this be possible? How could I be so disgusting and a God so glorious move towards me in compassion and act in this way? And the answer, like we said before, is on the basis of grace. And grace alone. That's what the text tells us. Paul begins that idea at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And then in verse 6, he goes back to the fact that we were raised up in Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But then he goes on in verse 8 to tell us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
the only basis by which this can happen is grace and grace alone. This is not our own doing. We can do nothing to receive this. We can do nothing to earn this. It makes so much sense when you think about John 11 and you think about this image of, of, of physical death. And you think about Lazarus laying there in the grave. What could Lazarus boast? What could Lazarus say? What could he add or offer to the situation? He could give nothing. He could do nothing. He was dead. He's totally and completely dead. He has nothing to offer, nothing to give. When he gets up out of the grave, it is only because of the grace of Jesus Christ enacted upon him. And if you and I are brought to life from spiritual death, it is only ever on the basis of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes on to say it is a gift of God. That gift is both the grace and the faith. It is the total work of salvation that comes to us as a gift from God that we cannot work for and is not a result of our works in any way, shape, or form. It is solely on the basis of grace. Our only boast is Christ. I want you to think about Lazarus after the, he's, he's been raised from the dead. I'm sure people heard about that story. And so what are they going to do? I'm going to go talk to Lazarus. I want to I mean, I want to poke him. I mean, I want to see. I want to watch him eat. I want to see him sneeze, make sure his head doesn't fall off or something. You know, I mean, I want to, is this guy really alive? And so I want to see him and I want to touch him and then I'm going to start asking him questions. going to be like, so, okay, all right. <clears throat> Let me get this, Lazarus. Okay. You got sick, right? Right? Am I right? Okay. Then you died, right? Now you're alive now tell me, tell me how that happened, Jesus. No, 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 wait, okay, back up. So you were dead and night, Jesus. Martha, Martha, come over here, because Lazarus isn't being very helpful. Martha, so you saw Lazarus die, yeah? And now he's alive, what happened, Jesus? Alright, Mary! The only boast, the only thing in the whole situation that can be boasted in is Jesus Christ. And so it is with our salvation that there is no boast for us but Christ and Christ alone. Because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and no work of our own. We skipped over a little part here, though what's the end of all this? Verse 7. Verse 7, all this is taking place and there's this little word at the beginning of verse 7 that says, so. So that. Here's the result. Here's the, the, the consequence. So that in the coming ages, and I think that the idea is not just future tense, but it's starting now. The moment we're brought to life in Christ... We are given life with Him, we're raised with Him, we're seated with Him. These things begin to happen. 
so that in the coming age He might show the immeasurable, incalculable, and imaginable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that our being raised to life is just the beginning of God lavishing in unimaginable, incalculable measure His grace towards us through the vehicle of His kindness. That starts now and it continues through eternity. Why? To whose glory? To what end? To what purpose? The text is clear and Paul has stressed it three times in chapter 1. To the praise of His glorious grace. You see, and God lavishing and pouring out in incalculable and unmeasurable ways His grace upon us in kindness towards us, it again is not to point to how good we are and our value. No, never. The immeasurable grace of God that's lavished upon us in salvation and all the way to glorification only ever goes to show us and display to both us and the world the immeasurable greatness of our God. To put on display His glory. And so that's the end. That we would be to the praise of His glorious grace. That our lives dripping with the grace of God, as He lavishes His kindness upon us, would result in Him being glorified. Well, the last thing we want to see is this. It was not, I was not only raised to life, but raised to live. I was not only raised to life, but raised to live. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship. I love that little word. It only appears in the New Testament one other time. It's used a lot in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most of the times it's used to refer to God's physical creation. is creating work in the beginning. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. The beauty and the wonder of God's physical creation. You sit here this morning and there has never been a person just like you before. And your wife says, Amen. There will never be someone like you ever again. You are absolutely and totally unique. Now we are all human beings. We are all made in the image of God. But being human beings made in the image of God doesn't mean that we're cookie cutters and that we just popped off the assembly line of God's creation. In fact, in Psalm 139, it tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it full well, David says. So think about God's wonder and beauty in creation and then bring that in here to verse 10 when it says we are His workmanship. Guys, last time you emptied the trash, did you call your wife in, kids in? Hey, look at my workmanship. That trash can is empty. There's a bag and everything, man. Watch, Look at that. It's not really something we call workmanship, is it? Workmanship is something that takes time, it takes effort, it takes energy, it takes creativity. Workmanship is unique. It bears the image of the one that's created it. We are His workmanship. Beloved, don't get into this mindset that you were knit together in your mother's womb in creativity and uniqueness in the first birth, only to be cookie cutter stamped out of some generic grace in the second birth. 
You are His workmanship. Your story of how God's grace has broken into your life is totally unique to you. It's the same grace. It's not a different truth or a different gospel. It's not a different life. It's still hid in Christ. But it broke into your life in a totally unique way. And God has totally uniquely equipped you and gifted you. You are like no other. Not just physically, but spiritually. You are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have been created for good works which, Paul says, were prepared beforehand. This beforehand, I think, is the same idea as back in chapter 1 when Paul says that before the foundation of the world, we were predestined to adoption as sons. God did not just predestined us to adoption, He predestined us all the way to glorification. And there's a part in there called sanctification. And that part of sanctification is not just some haphazard, okay, just cut them loose, let them run around crazy for a while, then we'll scoop them up at the end. No, God has prepared beforehand works for us to do. And notice how He ends this out, that we should walk in them. Now that takes us all the way back up to the beginning of this whole text in the beginning of verse 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what? And you walked. You see, it's been, there's total transformation that's taken place here. I was dead in sin and I walked enslaved. Now I am free and alive to walk in obedience to the works that God has prepared for me. Notice that it doesn't say do. It doesn't say do. It doesn't say work the works. It says walk in them. God has prepared them. And in the same way we've started by grace through faith in Christ, we continue in grace through faith. This is not talking about now that we are saved, we somehow through our own effort continue to, to work to earn God's approval and acceptance. No, He's prepared the works and we in faith walk in humble obedience so that we might be instruments in His hands that He would accomplish the works He prepared beforehand. What are these works? Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul will go on chapter 4 through 6 and he will lay out works. Some of them general works, what it should look like if you are alive in Christ and a husband and a wife, what it should look like if you're alive in Christ and a parent. One of the areas that the book of Ephesians focuses in on is what it looks like for these alive in Christ people to come together in a local body of believers called the church. And he stresses this point that we are all uniquely gifted. And we are all different and we are not to all try to be the same. But in your unique giftedness, talents and abilities, God has special works for you to do that you are uniquely equipped to do. There might be someone else in the body who could possibly do them, but it is not going to go so well. I mean, have you ever tried walking on your hands? That works for like half a second. Beloved, you are here this morning, and if you are alive in Christ, God has prepared works for you to do, not in, again, some land far, far away, here in this community right now. 
If you say this passage speaks to me, past tense, I was dead, but have been made alive, then I am now alive, raised, and seated with Christ. I am a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Then God has prepared works for you to do in this community, and He has uniquely gifted you to do them. And if anyone else has to fill in because you're not doing them, it will not go as well as if you did them yourself. Because God prepared them for you. That you would walk in them in faithful obedience. I think one of the clear areas of that, about this time last year, we were wrapping up a series on missional living. And we talked about the fact that in our normal rhythms of everyday life, we want to be thinking missionally. That's what we want to do. And in God's sovereign plan, He has put you in networks of people. You have connections and relationships with people that I don't have and will never have. And you have the opportunity to minister and to do good works in the lives of those people that I will never have. That's not an accident. It's not a mistake the people that you live alongside of, work alongside of, go to school with, shop at the same store with, work out with. Those are ordained by God that we would walk in them. So what's the application here? We gotta, we gotta hurry. What's the application here? Well, number one is this. If you are here this morning, and you hear these things, and you don't know of a moment where verse 4 has taken place in your life, You say, I understand what it's like to be selfish. I understand what it's like to have every motive begin and end with me. But I don't know what it's like to be made alive by God through Christ. Please, this morning, do not leave this room without asking someone how you can be made alive. Today could be the day of your resurrection. This could be the day that you tell your resurrection story about once being dead but being made alive by God through Christ. For those of us who already have put our faith in Jesus Christ, there are so many applications and things that could come from this, but let me just say this one thing. Where are you boasting this morning? When we started out with that question, do you believe this, does it come out in the way that you boast? Now a perfect illustration has been set up for me because this is the beginning of college football. (laughs) We talk about boasting. Right? I can say this because I'm a college football fan. People you have never met, you don't know their name, you probably don't want to know their name, they will drive around and the one thing they want you to know about them is the college football team that they root for. They have got it plastered on their car with stickers, magnets, flags, hats, t-shirts, You don't know who I am. You don't know my name. I don't want to know your name, but you better know I am for the Georgia Bulldogs. And if a conversation begins to break out, a whole lot of boasting goes on. Yeah, we got the number one recruit in the nation playing quarterback for us. Yeah, we got the best defense in the nation for like the past four years. Yeah, well, we got a good coach. Yeah, well, we got... You know what's happening in all that boasting? You know what you're saying in your boast? You're saying that's where I'm putting my trust in our ability to win. That's what boasting is. It exposes my heart to say that's where I'm putting my trust in thinking this is what's going to make me win. Our quarterback, because he's good, first 
He's an amazing guy. He's going to make us win. Our defense is going to make us win. Our coach, it's going to make us win. Can I ask you, outside of college football, what are you boasting in? If today we displayed your Instagram feed across this screen, what would it say you're boasting in? If we displayed your Facebook feed here, what, what would it say that you're boasting in? Are you more concerned that people know the homeschooling choice or other schooling choice that you have made, that you are either consuming organic food or the fattest foods that you can find? What are you boasting in? Because where you are boasting and the place that you find your boast is where you are placing your trust. And Paul said this in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now don't think that this boast is an arrogant boast. This is where my illustration breaks down, because most college football boasting is rather arrogant. We do not go out in the world to boast in Christ as if it was based on works. Can you picture Lazarus walking by a graveyard and going, ha ha, suckers! <laughs> you guys still dead over there. Does that even register? Would it make any sense? Could Lazarus go by a funeral and just snicker a little bit? <laughs> that guy's dead. Oh, would he go by a dead person and be like, why are you acting dead? What's your problem? Get up! No, what Lazarus received was only by grace. And what you and I have received is only by grace. So our boast is a humble boast. I am very concerned that the, 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 the attitude and the atmosphere of our time right now is so full of hatred. We are so consumed with proclaiming and standing on everything that we hate and that we are against that we can be tempted in the church to move out and to broadcast, I'm against that and I'm against that and I'm against that and I'm against you and I'm against you and I'm against you and no one knows what we're boasting in. G.K. Chesterton said this, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him but because he loves what's behind him. We do not move out into this world to tell them what we are against and who we hate and what we don't like. We move out into the world in humility because we've been saved by grace and we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else because it is where our only hope is found. And we know it is the only hope for them because they're dead in their sins and we cannot make them alive. But we know a God who can. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. And we thank You that it is not just words in a book that we will go home and put on our shelves and means nothing. But these are words that are speaking of a reality. A reality that has taken place because Christ physically died for our sins, was buried and rose again. I pray that for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, that the time that we've taken to think about our own resurrection story this morning will overwhelm us and fuel us to boasting humbly in Christ all throughout this week to our children, to our spouses, at work, at school, in our neighborhoods, that our boast would be Christ. 
And Father, if there are any here today who have not been made alive in Christ, I pray, I plead with you, Father, because you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, that you would move towards them in mercy, motivated by love on the basis of grace, and that you would make today the day of their resurrection. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.